1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today we'll be do- doing two things. The first thing is what we always do, which is talk to the author of a new book. The second thing, we'll be talking to a book reviews editor. So first we'll be talking with Luis Disipio, who's the author of U.S. Immigration in the 21st Century. After that, after the interview with Lewis, I'll be talking to the book reviews editor of Mobilization. I hope that you enjoy both of these conversations that I had. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm talking with Louis DiCipio, who's the co-author of U.S. Immigration in the 21st Century, Making Americans, Remaking America, published by Westview Press. Lewis, how are you doing today?
0: Oh, very well, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on and, and uh, read this book that uh, you and your co-author have written. So, Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about yourself and also your co-author.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine. My appointments are in political science and Chicano Latino studies, and I think both of those uh, come through in the book. Um, My co-author, Rudy De La Garza, is a professor at Columbia University, and we've worked together on various projects probably for the last 25 years now. Um, And one of those ongoing interests has been immigration policy. Uh, Initially in the 1990s, you know, when we were in sort of the beginning of the new enforcement regime and then increasingly in in recent years as we've been moving towards at least we thought we were moving towards comprehensive immigration reform
1: one of the things and you sort of allude to it right here that you write about in the um uh, maybe it's the prologue of the book is that this this ultimately isn't the book that you either set out to write or or expected to write uh... without giving away too much of what we're going to talk about um what is the book that you had planned to write? Uh, maybe the, what is the book that you had proposed to the publisher in the first place?
0: We had anticipated that Congress would do as it's been promising to do and pass comprehensive immigration reform. So we wanted to look at the compromises that were necessary to achieve that and then to look to the future a little bit to anticipate both the intended and unintended effects of, of that bill that, that we anticipated and that Congress anticipated that maybe never never came to the fore.
1: So the book ends up being being a little bit different. And, you know, this is one of the things I guess there's probably been whole generations of doctoral students who probably went into their doctoral programs with similar kinds of expectations. And, you know, the sort of the the longstanding status quo has, has, has been in place for a while. Before we get to some of the, the actual national policymaking, maybe you could characterize you know briefly for us. Um, what some of the patterns of, of actual immigration into the country have been? You, you describe waves of immigration um, without having you know, going into precise details. What do these waves look like over the last two hundred odd years?
0: Well, I think one continuing characteristic of immigration in the United States is that there's been ongoing demand, and, and that's unlike some other parts of the uh, of the uh, of the advanced, what are now advanced democracies. So the United States has always needed immigrants. And even though there have been reactions against those immigrants consistently in U.S. history, uh, that, that demand has guided policy. So in eras, you know, in the early part of the nation's history, when um, transportation across the North Atlantic was possible, uh, U.S. got large numbers of immigrants. And then as, you know, transportation became more regularized, those numbers increased. Um, we have, however, as you've suggested, seen these waves, and the wave sort of comes to a uh, an end point when native resistance to immigrants grows and becomes politically organized sufficient to slow or stop for a short period that immigration. So the first great wave ends with the civil war, which makes migration a little less appealing. But in the period just before the civil war, you saw one of these native resistances appear. And the focus then was against Catholicism. So Catholic immigrants became the target. Um In, in the, uh, uh, sort of after the Civil War, you saw a steady rise in immigration, but then the, the creation of a regulatory regime that could pick immigrants that were eligible to immigrate and exclude others, and that sort of comes to its apogee in the 1920s with the national origin quotas, which is the most restrictive period of immigration that I think we've seen in the United States, um, and exacerbated by the Great Depression, You know, not a period when people want to migrate too much. Um, I think we've over the last 20 years, seen another one of these periods of, you know, growth in immigration and native resistance to immigration. Uh, but I think in this period, the the recognition, at least on the part of economic leaders, political leaders, and ethnic leaders, who I think are an important actor today that maybe haven't been as important in the past, um, have assured that that resistance has been muted, at least, dramatically. Um, uh, not muted in the sense that it blocked comprehensive immigration reform, but muted in the sense that it was not able to slow the rate of immigration. So we're in a unique period in American immigration history. There's a lot of opposition to immigration. There's the ongoing demand for immigration, and then there's a new political actor, which is ethnic communities that are a pretty active voice in the debate.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to go back to that in a little bit. But before we get there, um, immigration policy, immigration law has a has a long history in the country, but You point to 1965, and and the the 1965 is really sort of the most important piece of this. So what did the 1965 law do to to change the course of of immigration in the U.S.? What what are the keys to that law?
0: Well, the 1965 Act um, emerges sort of in a period of civil rights debates in the United States. It's passed uh, very close in time, uh, a few months after uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So, you know, that period, I think is important to recognize. Um, And I think the bill is a a piece of civil rights legislation in many ways. It reduces considerably national origin barriers to migration. It maintains some, not some nations are barred, but it limits the numbers of immigrants from certain countries or or from all countries, but that affects certain countries more. Um, It created an opportunity for family members to migrate, um, immediate family members of U.S. citizens with relatively few impediments, um, and then family, more extended family members of, of U.S. citizens and a permanent residents with, with some delays. So it, it's the engine of the current economic, or I'm sorry, the engine of the current immigration growth in the United States. But the 65 Act, I think, is also important because it tells some people globally that they are ineligible to migrate. So it creates an incentive then for unauthorized migration. And the 65 Act didn't create any real new barriers at the borders or in the interior, so it created or it allowed for sort of an open growth in unauthorized migration you know, for the next of 30 years. Um, it's changed the nation in, in I think, really uh, unexpected ways. So when President Johnson signed it, he he, made the, he offered the assurance, and people at least historically believed him, that it wasn't going to change current patterns, but it did. It did. <laughs> It ensured that uh, Asian and, and Latino migration now make up about 80% of legal immigrants to the United States and that that legal immigration has steadily grown from about 300,000 per year in the 1960s to 1.1 million or so uh, per year in, in, in this in the contemporary period. Um, so, you know, so we... It was a piece of civil rights legislation that had the unintended consequence, I think, of changing the demographics of the United
1: States. Now, a lot happens between 1965 and, and today, but but I wanted to pay t- particular attention to this period, Oh, I guess now it's about 10 years ago, and so maybe we can fast forward a bit to 2006. Uh, would you walk us through briefly what happened in Congress in 2005? That that um, uh, in many ways led to the protest the following year. Uh, would you talk about this this uh, sort of the legislative action that, that um, spurred the the um, quite vocal protests? Uh, I I think that I'm not sure, but the the protests that maybe that appear on the cover of the book.
0: Would you tell us about this period? Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, you know, the, there's always this tension between sort of economic demand for for immigrants and uh, native resistance to immigrants, and the native resistance sort of appeared in Congress, specifically in the House of Representatives, um, in, in 2005 with the passage of a piece of legislation that nobody really expected to become law, but was sort of a shot across the bow for immigrant communities that would have criminalized unauthorized status in the United States. Um, prior to that, and, and it never became law, being an unauthorized immigrant in the United States is a civil offense, but not a criminal offense. The consequence of it being a criminal offense would be potential jail time, of course, Uh, But uh, more importantly, that that person would be permanently barred from immigrating to the United States if they were convicted of a crime. Um, Immigrant communities reacted angrily to this, despite the fact that leaders of both parties uh, assured uh, themselves and and immigrant communities that it would never become law and protested. Um, And the series of protests that we saw in 2006, I think, are the largest nationwide uh, social set of social protests in a short period that the United States has ever seen. Uh, the best estimates are about 5 million people turned out in nearly 200 cities nationwide over a two-month period. Almost all were peaceful protests, often very patriotic in a sense, in that the U.S. flag was a, a central piece of the, uh, uh, of the iconography of those protests, but it created sort of a new awareness in not just immigrant communities, but more importantly in their co-ethnic And of their U.S. citizen children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, et cetera, uh, that ethnic communities, immigrant communities, had to organize and have a voice in the immigration reform debate. Uh, The consequence of those protests was that the United States Senate um, engaged in what I think was a very important debate over genuinely comprehensive immigration reform and passed a bill in 2006. Uh, that uh, you know brought together the various pieces that are necessary for, for immigration reform, uh, legalization, changes to legal immigration status, get worker programs, you know, sort of the, the the rich mix that is in that compromise that is comprehensive immigration reform. Just as the House bill didn't become law, the Senate bill didn't become law either because they couldn't come up with any sort of agreement. But at least it showed immigrant communities that there was a uh, a positive force in organizing they block the house legislation and they push the Senate to act in a way that it might not have otherwise now unfortunately that uh, that lesson is is one that I think we often see in American democracy where you have some of some victory but not the victory that you want because clearly we haven't been able to pass comprehensive immigration reform since uh, since 2005 2006 uh, the the Senate has did pass another I think Reasonable though much more restrictive bill in two thousand and thirteen, but again, the House of Representatives would, wouldn't agree in that
1: and and let me correct myself. Um, the photo is actually from two thousand it looks like the two thousand eight uh, presidential campaign, not two thousand six and and that actually does um, sort of the nature of that photograph raises a, a question that I had, which is really of personal interest to me and and I wonder if we can maybe move to chapter five of the book uh, where you talk about voting. Um, you write about the the failure of mobilizing institutions to reach out to Latinos and Asian Americans. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what you're referring to exactly, and, and and sort of in a larger way. How does mobilization relate to voter turnout? Because it it would seem that much of the um, the, the, the the maintenance of the status quo for years and years and years, relates in some ways to to voter participation. So tell us about these mobilizing institutions that haven't been acting in in a way.
0: Sure. Here I need a little bit of a historical comparison and I think the book offers that. Um, We look back a little bit to what the uh, wave of European immigrants um, at the turn of the uh, 20th century experienced and compare that to uh, immigrants today. Um, In that earlier era there was a much richer network of civic training institutions in immigrant communities. Those could be you know, civic organizations, those could be um, the political parties, those could be the political machines. And they trained new participants on how to go through the mechanisms of, of participation. Um, we've moved now, 100 years later, to a system where the parties only fulfill that role in very close elections, where candidates uh, prefer and there's a slight exception to this in the Obama campaigns, an air war model to a ground war model, um, and where those civic institutions, you know, as, as many other political scientists have identified, are, are, are in decline or of atrophy. Um, so today's, as important as today's immigrants and their children could be to American politics, they're not getting trained as well or encouraged as well uh, to participate as immigrants have in the past. And some of this is just purely... Sort of geographic um, immigrants tend to live in the non-competitive states. In other words, the states where the parties and the political and the campaigns are not going to invest a lot in in the ground war. Um, so, in the Latino community, for example, over half of Latinos live in three states: uh, California, uh, Texas, and New York that haven't seen you know a competitive statewide race in a long, mm-hmm. long time. Um, and as a result, you know they just don't get that that sort of training and and that. Routinization of participation that people that grow up here get in greater quantity and and you know through the, through the schools and then through sort of the civic messaging about you know you should vote even if you don't want to now that said, a lot of natives don't vote either, but participation in immigrant ethnic communities in other words, naturalized citizens and then their u s born children is much lower uh, than um, uh, than in among the native born population
1: now if I had asked you this Question to come uh, at the start of the book. You probably would have answered it as you did at the start of this interview um, But is there the possi- what's the possibility of you writing the book that you had intended to write when you started this? In two years from now or three years from now or four years from now What what's your sense of the the potential for comprehensive legislation? In this Congress in a, in a in a future administration. Where, where, where do you see the future?
0: Well, I know that the nation needs comprehensive immigration reform for any number of reasons. Um, uh, economic interests uh, have made pretty convincing cases that they, uh, at least in certain sectors of the economy, can't get native workers to fill, uh, fill the jobs that they have. Um, immigrant ethnic communities have pointed out the manifest unfairness of you know uh, a population of unauthorized immigrants of you know, 10, 12 million. Many, over half have been here more than 10 years, and you know, clearly they're part of the United States. Um, the, uh, you know, refugee advocates point out that our refugee policy is driven by sort of Cold War ideology rather than, than the needs of the 21st century. Um, uh, even the, uh, uh, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and the a- of cio have been able to agree that the United States needs some expanded guest worker programs, um, though with greater of protections for the workers that we've had in the past, so the, so there's that the, you know the, there is a, a consensus about around a set of needs. That said, I don't think this Congress or or the next Congress will be likely uh, to pass that bill because you have uh, a pretty intransigent group of about 100 members of the House of Representatives who simply won't uh, entertain any comprehensive bill that has a legalization in it. They call it a path to citizenship. I think that mischaracterizes it, but nevertheless they you know, that they've been pretty clear on that and that that almost uh, halted the funding for the Department of Homeland Security. So having, I guess, hoped um, for the purposes of the book as well as as for the nation that we would come up with this compromise, um, I now don't think we'll get comprehensive immigration reform until after the redistricting that follows the 2020 census. I think that will help alter some of the arrangements that have blocked out immigration reform um, for the last few years. (coughs) Excuse me. And um, the other benefit of the election that follows the redistricting, um, that follows the, uh, or the election that precedes the redistricting that follows the 2020 census is that it'll be a little, presidential election here. Uh, the consequence will be greater. Uh, democratic turnout relative to, to 2010, meaning that more state legislatures will be in the hands of the Democrats who will be more likely to district in such a way that would, Elect some a greater number of office holders who who would be supportive of comprehensive of immigration reform. I realize that was sort of a long and winding answer. Uh, the simple answer is I don't now see comprehensive immigration reform for at least uh, five years.
1: Now, so if that's not your next book, uh, <laughs> what can we look forward to? Uh, what's the uh, are, are are the two of you collaborating on something new? What do we have look uh, to look forward to if the the comprehensive reform book we have to wait more than five or six years for. What could we expect from you?
0: Well, my next project, and I can't speak for Rudy. I mean, we've worked together for 25 years, so I know that there is a next project. We just haven't talked about what it is. But, but my next project is looking at the uh, political world of the second generation, uh, the, ch- the U.S.-born children of immigrants. Um, we now have some some relatively reliable data that let us connect the behaviors of the parents, meaning whether the parent came in as an unauthorized immigrant, was able to regularize his or her status, or came in as a legal immigrant, was able to become a U.S. citizen, to the adult behaviors of their children. And I want to sort of test a a hypothesis that parents that are more, immigrant parents that are more civically engaged through various measures will spur a more active and activist um, young adult uh, second generation. Because it's my Sort of guess, and I don't really have data to support this. That it is that it's that second generation who are, for the most part, quite you know young at this point. Um, uh, many are less than eighteen, but of those that are adults, they're in their twenties that are sort of leading this this movement to uh, uh, you know, make a human rights claim around the unauthorized, around their parents. I'm certainly they're supported by the Dreamers, but this isn't my reading. Is that it is a Dreamer and second generation movement.
1: Well, we have a lot to look forward to, and now we have U.S. Immigration in the 21st Century, Making Americans, Remaking America. Uh, the book is published by Westview Press, available widely. Louis DeSipio, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the podcast. For the second time uh, in the history of the podcast, not a very long history, we have the chance to talk to a book reviews editor of a, of a journal that, uh, that I read, and, and I hope that uh, you read as well. Uh, she's also an alum of the podcast. You may have heard her a couple of months ago, maybe even just weeks ago. Uh, Dina Rollinger, how are you doing today?
2: Great. Thanks. And how are you?
1: Uh, I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you again and have you on again to talk about the other hat that you uh, wear. You, you wore the book author hat a couple of weeks ago. Now you're wearing the book reviews editor hat. Uh, first, just tell us what the journal is um, for those that don't know it and um, and sort of what, what you guys uh, publish in addition to book reviews.
2: Yes, so Mobilization is an international journal. It's one of the top-ranked social movement journal in sociology. And so it's been around for almost 20 years, which is very exciting. In 2016, it'll be its its anniversary. And they cover in the journal a, a wide array of topics. So not just social movements, but also about issues of repression, um, any thing that would fall under political sociology, social movement, mobilization, and participation. So it's a really nice journal, and they also do many special issues. So recently we had one that was on um, methodologies, so new ways to study social movements, which many folks are trying to figure out how do you address issues like big data and bring them to speak to social movements.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in in an area that really does Straddle sociology and political science, and so the political science listeners um, who haven't read the journal, I think it's on that uh, you know you can add to your list, as well as the sociologists who probably already do. So tell us what what uh, you had in your book reviews section uh, this this past issue. This is a is it the January issue? Is that the latest one?
2: Yeah, so it just recently came out, so late February, early March here, and. This issue has it's a really great issue I think and it's because we have movements that transcend time and space so we have you know something on um, life as politics in the Middle East which is a second edition book and we have something that covers feminism in the Vietnam era so we really do have a, a wide array of books being covered and some of them are award winners and some might be lesser by lesser known authors but all of them are worth checking out.
1: Now, is there is there a book on the list that you you haven't yet read? Um, you're busy, so that you haven't yet read that that's next on your list of of two read books.
2: Yes, so the two read book for me would be Isaac Martin's Rich People's Movements book, and we just had a review done by Edwin Amenta, who's at Irvine, and this book won an award for collective behavior and social movements through the American Sociological Association this last summer. So I'm very eager to read it. And the topic, if folks have not read it but are interested in just the title alone, it's really about rich people mobilizing uh, against policy threats, and so how this is done and when it's done. And it sounds really fascinating because it sounds like one of the things that it has a lot of rich historical detail, but it sounds like um, Isaac Martin also talks about how the Republican Party infiltrated um, the Democratic – I'm sorry, the the rich, how rich people – infiltrated the Republican Party. There we go.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and Isaac came on the book, uh, came on the podcast, uh, I guess, about a year and a half ago to talk about the book. So um, people may have heard about the book before and now now can read this uh, review that, that appears in, in mobilization. So because some of the listeners to the podcast are, are book authors, um, if they were interested in having mobilization consider their book uh, for review, what would they do?
2: So you would have the book sent to me at Florida State University. Um, Instead of sending it to me directly, I just highly recommend you just have your publisher do it. Um, And please don't ask someone to write a review in advance and send it to me. That's just not, we don't do solicited reviews in that way. So get your book to me, and I really do my best to get as many books reviewed in each issue and try to get really nice reviewers in terms of, you know, that they know your area or at least part of it really well so that they can give you a good, not only just a good review in terms of a lively review, but talk about the ups and downs of your book, which none of us as authors are perfect, right?
1: <laughs> right, absolutely. And and I think um, I, I, the, the space that uh, journals give to reviews um, I think it's just so important for people who are writing. It's, it's you know, one of, the, one of the sort of pieces, the last piece of the, the, the publishing puzzle, which is the, the review. And, and so, you know, if, if listeners have books, uh, share them, and, and they, um, they may be uh, sent out, may be considered for, uh, for review. Thank you very much for your time. really appreciate having you back.
2: Thanks for having me.